Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. And this is part two of a three-part series on crimes involving the old Fort Hood military installation that is now known as Fort Cavazos. In part one, we covered a tragic training accident that resulted in the preventable death of a soldier and then the horrific 2009 mass shooting that left 12 soldiers and one civilian dead after being shot by Army Major Nadal Hassan in an act of terror on the base. For this episode, we will dive into another mass shooting and several homicides and other crimes that will lead into tomorrow's episode regarding the murder of Vanessa Guillen. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host, as well as some True Blue Crime merch. For no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The phrase, history has a way of repeating itself, holds true when it comes to violent crimes and Fort Hood. In the last episode, we discussed the deadly rampage carried out by Major Nadal Hassan as he gunned down 13 unarmed people and injured 32 more in an act of Islamic Jihad. In 2011, a similar plan by another radical Islamic soldier was thwarted by an observant and suspicious gun store owner. In fact, it was the same gun store where Nadal purchased the handgun he used to commit his shooting spree in 2009. So when another soldier walked into the store and asked about purchasing guns, ammunition, and gunpowder, the owner didn't hesitate to call the police. Investigators would find that the suspect, uh, Private First Class Nasser Abdo, had gone AWOL from his post at Fort Campbell after he was advised he was going to face a military court-martial. He was already under suspicion for making radical statements and had attempted to leave the army due to his religious beliefs, just like Nadal Hassan. It was during a check of his government-issued computer that investigators found links between him and an Islamic extremist leader and child pornography. When he was advised that he was going to face a court-martial, Nasir packed some of his belongings, went AWOL, and drove to Fort Hood. He was preparing to conduct a similar mass shooting and planned to also plant bombs at a local restaurant where soldiers often ate. But thankfully his plans were interrupted and another mass shooting on the base was prevented. That is, until three years later, when another gunman opened fire on the base. For this episode, we will look at the 2014 mass shooting on Fort Hood and several crimes and homicides in the following years that show why Fort Hood was the most dangerous military installation to serve at in the last 15 years. On April 2, 2014, less than five years after Major Nadal Hassan committed his 2009 mass shooting on base, 24-year-old Army Specialist Ivan Lopez went to his battalion administrative offices to request a 10-day leave to attend to family matters. Ivan was relatively new to Fort Hood, having just transferred to the base a few months prior to the shooting. He had been denied promotion on several occasions at his previous unit, and as a result, he was facing involuntary separation from the Army and was suffering from severe financial stress due to owing a lot of money in debts and child support to his first wife. The Army would later come out and say that Ivan did not report any of these issues to his leadership, 
but they might have been difficult due to extreme high turnover rates likely due to burnout from the over 10-year-old wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. What was interesting about the 2011 thwarted plan was that the suspect, this Nasir Abdo, he could have carried out his attack at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where he was stationed. I don't know if it was because he was already under suspicion. They thought people were going to keep a close eye on him or he wasn't going to be able to to get weapons in the area because of what he was being looked at for. But it definitely seems like he wanted to copycat what uh, the 2009 uh, mass shooting did in terms of uh, media attention and, and whatnot. And so I guess maybe doing this shooting at the same location would provide him with some level of notoriety. But because he went to the same exact gun store where Nadal Hassan bought his weapons, and it was only two years later, I'm guessing this gun store would they likely faced a lot of scrutiny for selling the gun to Nadal Hassan, even though they wouldn't have known at the time, and even the army didn't know at the time, that he had reverted to a religious extremist. But when this other Muslim soldier comes into the same exact gun shop and starts wanting to purchase guns and ammunition and gunpowder, it's obviously going to set off some red flags. And thankfully, they didn't just go along with it. Otherwise, we'd be talking about the second mass shooting in two years before we get to the current one. So luckily, the 2011 mass shooting was thwarted, but now we've got 34-year-old Army Specialist Ivan Lopez. And I know a lot of people are going to think that this could be a PTSD situation, but it was pretty clear in the research that this uh, specialist had, he had served tours overseas, but according to the military, he never saw combat. He would tell people that he saw combat, and he would tell people that he was in a military convoy that was hit by an IED, and when he told people, he, he made it sound as if the IED either hit his vehicle or hit very, very close to his vehicle, but the military also came out on that and said that he wasn't with anywhere within the blast range, and it was something where either he was like a mile away from the explosion when it happened, or he was one of the rear vehicles of the convoy and it was one of the front vehicles that was hit and and he was outside of the blast zone so he's actually not going to experience any direct combat or as far as we know you know lose anyone close to him uh, while he's on these tours so a lot of his issues seem to be related to his inability to obtain a promotion there's going to be some family stuff we're going to talk about and the one thing I will say, and this is not to bad mouth our service members at all. I mean, I, I was a service member from 99 through 05. I, I definitely remember these days. But the one thing about young service members, especially young male service service members, is they don't always make the best decisions. And if you know of people in the military or you were in the military there's there's a lot of jokes about these young privates that get sent you know they they leave their hometown and oftentimes it's a situation where they're living in either poverty or close to poverty they get sent to their off to basic training and then eventually they're going to end up at their first unit and they're going to make more money in a month now the pay's not great don't get me wrong especially for the hours you put in 
but they're still going to get paychecks every two weeks that they're not used to seeing and it's an amount of money that they're not used to seeing and so the first thing that they want to do is they want to go out and buy some fancy car and there's plenty of car dealerships off of these bases that will sell cars to young soldiers and it's often the case where it's almost no money down but then the interest rates and the loans are over 20 percent that they're going to pay because these soldiers have no credit and it's it's almost predatory lending if it isn't but basically these soldiers will buy anything they can get their hands on and they start living well beyond their means in terms of these they're only making so much in their paychecks but they're spending a ton of money uh, a lot of these bases right off the base in this next town that's the case here in Colleen, Texas, uh, out of sight of Fort Hood, there's a lot of bars and uh, nightclubs and strip clubs where during the weekend when the, the soldiers are off, they will go and spend an absurd amount of money. There's unfortunately also a lot of drugs that go through these nightclubs and strip clubs and, and whatnot. So it's just a very rough environment, especially for young soldiers, and that's going to partly contribute to what we're seeing here in terms of these large number of homicides and some of the suicides. It's sometimes it's financial stress, sometimes it's, it is PTSD, it's combat related. But in the, in the case of specialist Ivan Lopez, I believe he was married at least twice, which is also something that happens with young service members. They often get married young thinking that they, they have their whole lives ahead of them. The military does do a better job of supporting spouses, or at least it did uh, back when I was in 20 plus years ago. It would recognize a spouse, and if, if the service member, whether they be male or female, was deployed overseas, the, the spouse would uh, receive basic allowance for housing so they could cover their rent, they get money for food, plus then they were getting the salary from the, the, the soldier. But if you weren't married, you just either engaged or as your girlfriend if the army deployed you they considered that they were providing you with housing because whatever base you're going to be living on overseas was your housing so they didn't feel that they needed to pay in addition for housing so a lot of the times these young soldiers would get married young to get the benefits for their spouse well again these are oftentimes first time serious romances that once they're through that puppy love or honeymoon period, all of the problems are exposed, especially during this time period. There's a lot of deployments where these soldiers were away for six, 12, sometimes up to 18 months that they were away. And there was a lot of infidelity that was going on, which has always happened on military deployments where the significant others of the deployed soldiers will have infidelity issues and it's as I said it's just a very difficult life that a lot of people who didn't serve in the military wouldn't really understand because you, you haven't experienced it you haven't seen somebody go through it and it's going to lead to again a lot of stressors a lot of crime a lot of violence and that's what we're going to see throughout this episode so this is kind of what's going on with with specialist lopez and another problem he's having is that he he has been passed up for several promotions and there's uh, some times in the military you know you're, you're supposed to continue to work your way up through the ranks and if you're not or you've 
cause too many problems or whatever it might be, uh, the, the army can choose to involuntarily separate from you. And so if Specialist Lopez is about to basically lose his job and he doesn't have a whole lot of prospects, he's already in debt and he's got child support that he owes. As he said, he is in debt that he owes other people money. The, the idea of a pending separ involuntary separation is going to be tough. So it was said he was trying to get veterans benefits, uh, trying to get some type of a disability pay set up so that he could continue to receive some pay even after he separated from the military. But we'll talk about what the actual catalyst to, to his crime is. And as, as we mentioned, the result of these stressors is he decided to carry out an act of violence and returned to the administrative offices and opened fire with a personal handgun shooting three of the soldiers whom he had argued about with his leave request. So he had gone in, uh, apparently his the apartment that his current family was living in had been burglarized. And so he was trying to move apartments and there are soldiers that burn through all their leave, just like there's people at regular jobs that blow through all their PTO or their vacation. And I don't know if that was the case with him, but it definitely seemed like he was struggling to get leave at times, which like you only, you accrue with, at least when I was in, I think it was like 2.5 days of personal leave a month. So you have your, usually your weekends off if you're stateside and you're not part of some month-long FTX or training exercise or whatever it might be. But then on top of that, as I said, for every month, I think it was, you accrued 2.5 days of personal leave. So every other month you could basically take a week off and return home to see your family or whatever it might be. A lot of soldiers bank those up and then would try to take you know, like a 10-day leave so they could go home for a full 14 days or something like that, hang out with their friends, family, whatever it might be. But some soldiers, like I said, they blow through it as soon as they get it. I don't know if that was the case with, with Ivan, but he had requested this kind of this emergency 10-day leave, and it was supposedly built around that he was trying to move his family from one apartment to another because the one apartment he didn't feel safe at because it had been burglarized. And he had been granted a four-day leave to do that. And so when he was trying to get this 10-day leave, the one thing with the military is everything goes through chains of command and things have to be stamped with approvals and the paperwork has to be filled out correctly and there can be seven different forms that basically ask you the same thing but in a different way. And so it sounded like when he turned in the form for it to request this emergency 10-day leave, he had filled out some stuff wrong. And so this is what the argument at the administrative offices was, was then telling him, you didn't fill out your paperwork correctly, so you're not getting this leave, at least right now, you're gonna have to come back later, refill out the paperwork or fix it, it's gonna have to go back through the chain of command. And so when he gets word of this, Ivan decides he's gonna go out, smoke a cigarette, he gets a personal handgun out of his vehicle and goes inside and shoots three of the soldiers he's having the, this argument with about his leave request. And while his wounds to these three soldiers were not fatal, he did inflict a fatal wound on Sergeant First Class Warren Hartnett while the NCO was trying to barricade a conference room to keep Ivan from harming more soldiers. And after wounding the three soldiers and killing one, Ivan left the building and began driving to a motor pool where he worked. He shot at two soldiers who were walking in the area, injuring one, and then he arrived at his work building. Walking in, he shot at one soldier in the office and injured her with a grazing shot to her head. Another NCO 
Sergeant Timothy Owens attempted to talk Ivan down, and Ivan fatally shot Sergeant Owens and then wounded another soldier. He entered the vehicle bay and shot and injured two more soldiers, and then had a weapons malfunction. He cleared the malfunction while walking back to his car, and then he drove to a medic headquarters. One more soldier was injured when he fired into their vehicle as he drove by, and then he shot and injured a lieutenant that was walking in the medic HQ parking lot. His third and final murder was committed when he shot and killed the front desk worker for the medic HQ, a staff sergeant named Carlos Lazani Rodriguez. Further into the building, he shot and wounded three more soldiers before exiting and returning to his vehicle. Ivan drove to yet another building, and upon arrival, he was met by a uniformed military police officer. The MP opened on fire on Ivan, missing him, at which point Ivan turned the gun on himself and fatally shot himself in the head. An investigation into the motivation for the shooting produced more evidence of the stress and duress Ivan was under at the time of the shooting. He was from Puerto Rico, and his grandfather and his mother had both died recently during a five-month period. When he requested leave for his mother's funeral, he was only given enough leave for him to spend 24 hours in Puerto Rico. This was eventually lengthened to two days, but he was said to be very upset with the lack of understanding by the military. And as I mentioned, the argument over the 10-day leave was due to some clerical errors in his paperwork, and his actions that day may have been the result of him reaching a breaking point with the Army's impersonal approach to soldier welfare. And this is a big thing. I think the there was a motto at Fort Hood that was supposed to be followed. It was something like, family first, service second, or something along those lines. It was, it was the idea that they were supposed to support soldiers and their issues with their family first and the the saying at Fort Hood at the time from the soldiers was something like army first equipment second uh, and family wasn't even on the list and I definitely understand that because the army has a mission overall but this was a time period in which because of the extended wars in Iraq and Afghanistan the army was trying to or at least on the surface, they were they were supposed to be helping soldiers get through a lot of these multiple deployment issues that were going on with their families. Uh, while the the army superiors were saying this is what they were doing, a lot of soldiers weren't experiencing this. Now, at the same time, I don't have anything in the research to show whether or not Ivan, again, had he burned through all of his leave, and that's why. He's getting these very short emergency leaves uh, whenever something happens. Not to say that he could expect his mother to pass. Maybe she, you know, maybe it was a very unexpected situation. But if he just burned through all of his leave and then a month later his mother passes and he only has 2.5 days of leave, the military's not under an obligation other than a certain amount of family leave, but if it's going to take you a travel day to get there and a travel day to get back, uh, it's it's very possible that because he had used all of his leave, they weren't going to just give him 10 days of, of bereavement leave to, to go visit family and be around for his mother's funeral. And so again, it, it could be a lack of understanding by the military. I have seen it happen before, but it also said could be a case where it's a, it's a soldier that just continually tries to to get leave, try to try to basically short of going AWOL. They're trying to just get away from the military every chance they can get. And 
as a result, you know, he's he's burned through all of his all of his leave. The investigation also revealed that despite a recommendation made about civilian medical records being merged with military records so leaders could identify risks within their units, which was a recommendation that was made after the 2009 mass shooting, the practice had not been implemented by 2014. And so although Ivan sought help for mental illness, his leadership was not aware of any potential issues or needs for additional support. So basically coming out of the Nadal Hassan shooting, the army made a series of recommendations about how they could prevent this from happening again. And one thing was, you know, soldiers could go on base and report mental illness issues or, or whatever it is to the, the base psychiatrists and the, the base doctors. But a lot of guys and gals were worried about that because they worried it would be detrimental to their promotion, worry that other people would find out about it. So they'd go to civilian medical facilities in the area to seek help outside of the military. Well, because that stuff's covered by HIPAA, because technically their employer is the military, uh, there was still issues five years later when they're trying to figure out how can we allow leaders to see that somebody like Specialist Lopez is going to be treated for depression or suicidal ideations or, or homicidal ideations so that we can keep a closer eye on him and support him in ways that he needs support if we don't know that he's seeking this help. So again, this there's a lot of issues with risk identification here. We mentioned the leadership turnover when you've got uh, soldiers that have gone on two, three deployments and they're high-ranking either officers or NCOs and then they've had enough with the military they want to get out uh, the turnover rate was very high so you might have a platoon sergeant one day and then two weeks later you'd have a new platoon sergeant and then two weeks later you'd have a new platoon sergeant so these guys trying to keep track of all the stuff going on within their units was pretty tough so Again, that was that was the 2014 mass shooting. It clearly wasn't as damaging from a, a death toll as the 2009 mass shooting, mainly because you know Ivan didn't really plan this out like Nadal Hassan did. He didn't bring as much ammunition as Nadal Hassan did. He didn't stay in one location where there was a large amount of people gathered. So it definitely could have been as bad. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't, and it didn't have any ties to religious extremism, so it actually really didn't make the news nearly as much as the 2009 one did. But these three murders and the suicide that occurred that day were only the tip of the iceberg for what was in store for Fort Hood in the future. In 2015, an investigation was launched into a prostitution ring that was being run on the base. A senior NCO Sergeant First Class Gregory McQueen was investigated and faced a court-martial for his role in running the sex worker ring from a position of leadership. And in the Army, new soldiers are taught to respect and follow senior NCOs from the time they arrive at basic training. And by 2015, many senior NCOs had served multiple combat tours and were highly decorated and respected soldiers. So when three young, low-ranking female soldiers came to see SFC McQueen looking for help with their money issues, they likely expected him to offer some life advice. He had, after all, been appointed by several high-ranking officers 
to serve as a victim advocate for soldiers, a position that garnered him even more trust. And so this is the thing, when you arrive down at basic training, after you go through your kind of basic, there's like a period where you're going through getting all your uniforms and all your paperwork and all that kind of stuff. There's one and a half weeks roughly where you spend in that. As soon as you arrive at your basic training site, you're going to be met by your drill sergeants. And these guys are usually a staff sergeant and a sergeant first class. So it's the ranks are E6 and E7. So they've, they've been around the military for a while. A lot of these guys at this time when people were going through uh, basic training, these are combat veterans, and they're there just like you see in the movies to yell at people and get them in line and get them to become a better soldier. But they're also oftentimes places you can go for advice and somebody that you look up to because of how long they've been in the military and what they've done. And so you come out of basic training with this respect for senior NCOs. So when these three young, low-ranking female soldiers arrive on the base, they're having money issues, so they're going to go to this victim advocate, who's Sergeant First Class McQueen, and try to talk to this NCO about their problems, and he instead sees an opportunity to exploit them, and he offered to help them make money by finding the men, including other high-ranking NCOs, that would pay them to attend parties where they would strip and have intercourse with the paying clients. Sergeant First Class McQueen was supposed to be helping stop sexual assaults and sexual abuse on bases like Fort Hood, but instead he was compounding the issue. Unfortunately, the Army only saw this as an isolated incident on the base, and as a result, demoted McQueen to private, discharged him, and sentenced him to two years in prison. And I say unfortunately, they only saw this whenever something like this hits, and this did hit the the local news, at least down in the area. They like to, to do the whole it's just one bad apple thing and it's pretty clear that if somebody has been promoted up all the way up to at least sergeant first class and then they're performing this type of behavior uh, that there's probably more cultural issues going on here than than just one bad apple but the army likes to to say it's one bad apple we get rid of this bad apple and and everybody else is good and we're going to find out unfortunately that is not the case And they failed to address the culture on the base that was described as looking the other way when it came to criminal acts like sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and sexual assault on the base. And maybe if they had made major changes in 2015, the crime we'll focus on next episode would not have happened. But before we get to Vanessa Guillen's case, we're going to discuss several other homicides that occurred in 2019 and 2020 that will set the stage for tomorrow's episode. While this list is not in any way meant to be inclusive to all victims of violent crime on or around Fort Hood in late 2019 and 2020, it is meant to highlight the dangers presented to serving and recently released service members living on or near the base at the time. It's also important to note that while Fort Hood is not the only military installation to experience major violent crime, it was recognized as being the most dangerous military base in America during the times these crimes are committed. In a report compiled by KWTX in Texas, the news outlet researched four military bases roughly the same size as Fort Hood and compared them to deaths out of Fort Hood. For full transparency, the soldier soldier population of Fort Hood in 2020 was 25,000, and it was compared to Fort Stewart in Georgia at 22,000, Fort Campbell in Kentucky at 27,000, 
Fort Bragg in North Carolina at 51,000, and Fort Drum in New York at 15,000. And I'm not going to break it down statistic by statistic, but I think it's important because I think a lot of people would say, well, yeah, you know, there's some issues with Fort Hood, but this happens at every military base. Because of this report, though, you can you can definitely see the difference between Fort Hood and these other similar sized bases. And so in 2020, Fort Hood had eight accidental deaths, five homicides, two illness-related deaths, six suicides, and five that were pending investigation for a total of 26 deaths. Fort Stewart is roughly the same size and had the same number of suicides, but only one homicide, half the accidents, and only two pending for 13, so half as much. Fort Campbell had half the accidents, three homicides, seven suicides, but nothing pending for 15 deaths. So again, roughly half the number of deaths. And Fort Bragg has twice the population and had only one homicide, but did have more illness and suicides, but still two less total deaths at 24, despite being twice the size. And Fort Drum, being smaller, had only four deaths and no homicides. So it's clear that Fort Hood was a dangerous place to serve, and while other installations have issues, they aren't as severe as Fort Hood. So just to really break that down again, it's if you compare it to similar size bases, basically any size that was a base that was the same size as Fort Hood had half the number of deaths. The only one that was close was Fort Bragg, but that had twice the population. So again, if you go by population, it's roughly half. And then Fort Drum being you know half the size only had four total deaths compared to 26 so when you compare these bases there just really is no comparison in terms of fort hood is just you're twice as likely to go to fort hood and die some type of a, a death whether that be homicide suicide accidental whatever it is than than any other base in america at the time at 2020 and the 26 deaths that were reported were only through september of 2020 and because of that, it was the lowest death total at Fort Hood had been at since pre-2016. In 2016, there were 37 deaths, 2017 saw 29, 2018 saw 28, and 2019 had 38 deaths. But it isn't just about the numbers, but about the crimes themselves. And again, if you're talking about deaths just on a base alone, it's like looking at a town of 25,000 people and having... Five homicides in just the first nine months of the year, five homicides, eight suicides, all these accidental deaths. You know, the town I worked in was, was three times that size, and we'd maybe average one homicide a year. So, if if that town, if the town I had worked in was the same, had the same murder rate, same death rate as Fort Hood we would have expected in 2020 to see 15 homicides, which would have just been insane for for a, a suburb outside of Minneapolis. So again, whichever way you look at it, these numbers are just eye-popping in terms of how dangerous this base is. And we'll talk about a few of the deaths here. On August 19th, 2019, uh, Private Second Class Gregory Morales went missing from Fort Hood. When family tried to report him missing, the Army and police considered him AWOL, and no real investigation was done into his disappearance. His skeletonized remains were found on June 19, 2020, in a field in Killeen, Texas, proving that he didn't go AWOL. Adding to the frustration about the lack of investigation was that 
PB2 Morales was due to be discharged just a few days before he went missing, which is not a normal time for a soldier to go AWOL and risk losing an honorable discharge status. And that's really important. You know, when guys go AWOL and gals go AWOL, uh, absent without leave, it's oftentimes, you know, they've got months left, if not years left, and they just want out of the military, so they just walk off base, and eventually they'll get fugitive status for the AWOL, they can be charged, they can be discharged, all that kind of stuff. If you've got just days left before you're going to be discharged, then it makes zero sense for you to go AWOL. You just stick it out for a couple more days, and then you can do whatever you want without risk of losing any benefits or facing any criminal charges. And investigators would eventually discover that Morales had been in a nightclub the night before he went missing and had married a stripper from a nearby club the year after he arrived at Fort Hood. He was planning to use the GI Bill to pay for school to learn to work on wind turbines and make a future for his family, which included two stepchildren. But it was also discovered that during his time at Fort Hood, PV2 Morales had joined an outlaw biker gang and his murder may have been related to his service to the gang. Nonetheless, it was another young life that had served his country and didn't deserve to be killed and left on the ground outside Fort Hood. On March 1, 2020, Specialist Shelby Jones was shot once outside a strip club in Colleen, Texas. The young soldier was enjoying a night out on the town with fellow soldiers when he was shot once in the chest in the parking lot. His buddies drove him to a nearby gas station where they flagged down a police officer, but it was too late and the young soldier died. A suspect was arrested a few months later, but a grand jury declined to indict him on any charges. No information is available about the suspect or why he wasn't indicted. The prosecutors say they remain open in trying the case again if more evidence is made available. So this was a frustrating case because you can find a lot of information about this, the death of Specialist Jones and even some updated press releases like a day or two after where they're, they're saying he was at this club and that's, they believe that he was shot while in the parking lot of this club and they're offering rewards. And then a few months later, they have this grand jury. They don't name the suspect and they don't say why he wasn't indicted. But they just say, you know, the case remains open. So I don't know if it's a case where they got information that this this suspect may have been the shooter, but no physical evidence to tie him and the witness testimony wasn't enough, or if there was some type of a self-defense argument that was being brought up uh, that wasn't going to result in criminal charges. Again, there's just little to no information about the outcome of this, of this case. And on March 5th, specialist Christopher Sawyer was found by his five-year-old daughter after he committed suicide in his house on Fort Hood. Specialist Sawyer was just 29 years old and lost his battle with his mental and emotional demons and scarred his five-year-old daughter in the process. On March 14th, Specialist Freddie Dela Cruz Jr. was shot and killed along with two non-soldiers in an apartment in Colleen, Texas. Officers were dispatched to a shots-fired call at the apartment complex and located Specialist Dela Cruz Jr. and two others inside the apartment, all dead from gunshot wounds. A fourth would-have-been victim was working at the time, and she said that her roommates always locked the doors and windows, and so the suspect would have to be known to the victims. She gave the name of a possible suspect, who was a former soldier named Bernard Morrow. Bernard was known to own and carry a 9mm handgun, consistent with the 17 9mm casings found at the scene. When he was arrested, he was found in possession of the handgun, which was ballistically matched to the bullets and the casings from the scene.
Barnard took the stand at his trial and said that the handgun had been stolen a few months earlier, then was used by someone else during the homicide, and then he found it in a Walmart bag while he was out for a run. He claimed someone was trying to frame him for the murder. And this is, you know, we've talked about this before. Criminals, especially ones facing serious charges, they're often like a spouse that's involved in an affair. And when they get caught, they come up with these absolutely insane stories that in their mind, they can believe it because they want to believe it. They're, 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 they're so desperate to try to make something make sense that they'll tell these stories that, that again, at the end of the story, they're telling themselves in their head, yep, yep, that's believable. But to everybody else who's standing on the outside, they, they, they're saying, are you kidding me? And, and so that was his defense was that this gun had been stolen. So it was out of his possession during the murders. But then while out for a run, he said he found the gun by a bridge where he always stops on his run to do push-ups. So he, and it was in a Walmart bag and it was disassembled. And so he thought somebody would have known that he goes for runs and stops to do push-ups there. So they would have dropped it off right before he would do his morning run. And therefore, he finds his own gun again and doesn't call the police. It just puts it back together and then he's going to start carrying it around with him again. And he expects you know a jury to believe this, to, to for this to create reasonable doubt. And it's one of those things where... I think what you've done as a suspect at that point, you've now convinced the jury that you definitely did the crime because there's just absolutely no way they could believe this insane story. And if they can't believe your insane story, they have to believe that you actually had the gun, which makes you guilty of the crime. You'd be better off not taking the stand and somehow trying to figure out a different way that you could have had the not had this gun and somehow it ended up back in your possession you know borrowing it to somebody who then gave it back to you or something like that but the jury didn't buy it and he was convicted and sentenced to life without parole for the murders then in april army pfc vanessa guillen went missing in a case that brought fort hood and its many problems to all of the major media outlets in the country and around the world We will cover her homicide and discovery in the next episode. On May 18th, PFC Brandon Rosecrans was found dead inside his burned-out Jeep in nearby Harker Heights. An autopsy revealed he was shot and killed before the fire and the arson was likely used as an attempt to destroy evidence. A search warrant for PFC Rosecrans' phone showed that he had been in recent communication with a man named Brandon Olivares. Investigators determined Oliveira's phone had been in the same area as PFC Rosecrans on the night he was killed, and they named him a suspect. The witness had seen two people walking away from the burning Jeep. The witness did not get a good look at these two people, and they walked away from him when he called out to them. Investigators asked nearby homeowners to check their security cameras, and Oliveira was caught on camera walking away from the area where PFC Rosecrans was found in his Jeep. Oliveira was known to carry a gun and he did not live in the area and had no reason to be in the area of the Jeep. Officers located Oliveri's on June 4th and found a burn pit at his home, and in the burn pit were the remains of the key for the Jeep. There was no key for the Jeep found in the vehicle or on PFC Rosecrans. Oliveri's told several different stories about the night PFC Rosecrans died, but none of them matched the cell phone data or evidence at the scene. Investigators were eventually able to get evidence to prove Oliveris killed PFC Rosecrans in an attempt to rob him. 
It was later determined that valuables belonging to the soldier were missing from his apartment to include his body armor, some personal guns, and some electronic devices. PFC Rosecrans' father believed the young soldier was looking for friends due to the death of one of his close friends back home and was vulnerable and likely preyed upon by Olivares because the soldier had some money and items that could be sold for cash. Olivares pled guilty to the murder in exchange for no death penalty and a lighter sentence. He received 50 years in prison, 40 for the murder, and 10 for unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon. And this is, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, these soldiers, sometimes for, for different reasons, they might not get along with guys in their unit. Uh, sometimes it's a defense mechanism, if, especially during times of war where they've been deployed overseas and lost some, some close friends of theirs. They just kind of distance themselves from other people in the unit. Sometimes they're just, for whatever reason, something happens and they're, they're ostracized by the unit. So they go looking you know, for friendship outside the military. And if the, in the case of PFC Rosecran, his good friend back home dies, if he's going out, a, a lot of these, again, these soldiers have some money, they have some nice items. Oftentimes, especially during this time period, there was signing bonuses. If you re-enlisted, you could get cash free if, while you're overseas. Uh, you could get you know, upwards of 10, 15, sometimes $20,000 to re-enlist. And when those bonuses came through, they used these as down payments for vehicles or, again, to buy some nice things, which made them targets for people who wanted to steal these items from these soldiers. And in the case of PFC Rosecrans, it unfortunately cost him his life. And on July 3rd, 33-year-old specialist Miguel Yazzi took his own life, and his family was claimed that he denied was denied access to see a doctor for mental health reasons. On August 13th, Staff Sergeant Bradley Moore, a member of the Texas National Guard, died during a land navigation course, much like Sergeant Spader in 2007. And by the end of 2020, the number of dead or missing soldiers from Fort Hood was up to 39. And because of the attention brought forward by Vanessa Guillen's case, Army officials in Washington finally decided to take action. We will cover some of those changes in the next episode as many of them pertain more to the change of culture needed after what happened to PFC Guillen. Despite these changes, according to some anonymous sources associated to the new Fort Cavazos, there have not been as much of a change of culture as a new culture of silence, where reports are made and then buried to prevent information from leaking out to the general public. For example, in March 13th of 2023, two female soldiers committed suicide, one on base and one off base. The one on base was reported to the press per Army guidelines, but the one off base was kept quiet, and base officials said it was not their duty to inform the public about a soldier's death that occurs off base. And while this is accurate, it's also true that there's nothing that prohibits it. So it appears the change in the name was not enough to lift the curse of the old Fort Hood. And as the U.S. Army enters into a period of relative peace in the world, one can only hope that they take the chance to learn from the past and change the culture and climate of the all-too-dangerous base. And, and I say this because you know, this is what the U.S. military refers to as kind of the quote-unquote peacetime, a, a time period in which the U.S. isn't actively involved in any large-scale conflict zones. We still have troops all over the world at different bases, peacekeeping missions in several countries, uh, kind of a readiness force in, in, on several overseas bases. Obviously, in the cases of like the Navy, they, they have sailors 
and aviators that are out at sea at all time and submariners and that kind of stuff. So it's not as if the military has nothing to do and, and the soldiers are constantly training, but it is a different type of mission when you're constantly training to get deployed and come back and training again to get deployed and then coming back. And then while you're on deployment, it's there's a, a purpose, a sense of, of a mission. Uh, it's just, it's different during these times of relative peace. And this you hope is the time period in which the, the military can address some of these issues like we're going to see tomorrow or try to put an end to you know, almost 39 deaths out of uh, 25,000 soldiers in a single year. Again, this this is the hope, but we'll wrap up the case of the Fort Hood deaths. And, and again, I'm not meaning if, I, if I, somebody's listened to this and I skip the death of their loved one, either in 2020 or 2019 or any time period on Fort Hood, this wasn't meant to be inclusive of every single death that occurred on Fort Hood. I, I probably have an entire podcast that could be dedicated to that at this point based on what I've seen in the research. Um, I think it's just important to highlight some of the some of the deaths here. So, But we will wrap up our Fort Hood series tomorrow with a tragic case of PFC Vanessa Guillen. So thanks guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon and PayPal at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.